And welcome to a Not Your Normal History podcast special. And tonight we're going to be talking about victory in Europe to celebrate May 8th. Tonight I have my co-host as usual, Austin Matchy, and making his debut on the show, Joey Perska. Gentlemen, how are you today? Very good. Good, man. How about you? Doing good. So... Um, I think we got a, a fun show tonight, today, tonight, whichever time people want to listen to this. Um, so before we jump into it, let's we'll see how everyone's doing. How's the weather in California, Joe? Well, it's a lot better than in Illinois right now. You guys don't know if you want to have some snow or some sunshine, but uh, it's pool weather all day, every day here, my brother. Uh. I'm not going to say I'm jealous because then I'd be lying. Um, yeah, Austin, do we have snow this weekend? Is is that on the on the menu for us? I just stopped looking at this point, honestly. Yeah, it changes. I, I know. It was like last <laughs> last weekend it was in the 70s, and then it was like 50, and then it was like 60 the last two days, and then they say it's going to be in the 40s and maybe snow. And I'm like, I hate this state. <laughs> hey, man. They're talking about the Northeast getting pummeled again. I'm glad I don't live there. No way. I mean, it's like almost the middle of May, and we're we're talking about snow, but except you, Joe. <laughs> hey, man, it's it's not easy living in a place where you wake up every day, the sun is shining, and there's palm trees. It's not easy. Uh, I, yeah, I couldn't complain either. <laughs> I'm glad really you sense the sarcasm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, look where I live. So, um, <laughs> so anything else going before we uh, jump on? What do you guys got? Any uh, any books, documentaries you guys watching, or what? What do you got? Well, related to World War Two, uh, just finished the uh, Hitler's Inner Circle. Okay. Yeah, you're kind of cheesy at times, but man, is it good. Netflix, right? Yep, it's on Netflix. Okay, okay. Awesome, what do you got? Oh, uh, well, my book finally came in, The Book of Five, five, uh, five Rings by uh, Miyamoto Musashi, and that's uh, that's pretty good, actually. He like breaks it down into different sections, uh, you know, representing different elements of life and stuff, and kind of the way that he uses each one as like an interpretation to kind of fit that somewhere into like the art of war and stuff like that. So it's a very interesting book. Okay. You have to let me know how that goes. Yeah. Uh, I am currently reading uh, the day of battle by Rick Atkinson, the war in Sicily and Italy, 1943 through 44. It's a good book. I same situation. I can't put it down. Um, learning a, a lot of new stuff on that end. Which, you know, World War II related, that's a sector of, you know, the conflict you don't really hear about too much is like, you know, Italy. You know, it kind of gets kind of pushed aside by but Normandy and everything like that. That was intense fighting there. Yeah. Big time. Now, my great uncle, he was in the 36th Infantry and he fought in Italy. So that's kind of where this book is. And I have his division book, and I'm going through, and I'm like, man, this is just 
intense fighting. It's huge. And they didn't know if they were going to fight with the German. I'm sorry. I'm speaking about the Italians. They didn't know if they were going to fight with the Germans or with the Allies. They were split, too. Yeah. I'm in a section where they're getting into Sicily, and it's like the Italians are just giving up right away. And and the Germans are like, hey, turn around. They left us. And they're just, like, leaving. And I'm like, well, what? it's not motivated, I guess. Well, how could you be, especially after you were put under Nazi occupation and they started going after your top guys and your people? Right. Just crazy. Like, crazy stuff. I mean, it, it's weird. Like, you just see them, like, giving up, like, nothing. And the Germans are like, dude, where are you guys going? We're like, we're fighting together. Where, <laughs> where are you guys going? And, and you know, it, it wasn't even that much long after that, I think, that Italy flipped sides, right? Yeah, when they flipped sides, uh, there was a story. I don't know what port it was in Italy, but the Luftwaffe started bombing Italian ships before it was made official. Oh, jeez. Wow. Yeah. That's they were just sinking them in the ports. Wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's that's one of these things that, you know, looking back uh, historically about World War II, it's like yeah, I think most people have this general conception that it was like a black and white, very easy, you know, war to understand, good and evil. But there's so many, like, mixed things that are going on. I mean, like, like Finland isn't really a part of, you know, the access, but they're kind of fighting with the Germans against the Russians because they have a common enemy, but they're not at war with the Western allies for whatever reason. So it's like... Is really weird. So, um, kind of getting into what we're uh, talking about tonight, I think that this uh, huge historical day, uh, 75 years since the end of the war in Europe. Now, it, it's interesting to me that as old as I am, that I can remember like, you know, World War II veterans, like, all over the place. And I know that we're losing them at just tremendous rates. You know, it, it makes sense. I mean, most of these guys are, what, upper 90s? Yeah. 90s, hundreds, you know. It ain't going to be much longer, and, you know, all this is going to go away. And when I look back at, you know, VE Day, just how historically important it was, and here we sit 75 years later that we can talk about it in multiple, multiple generations, of course. Um, and I think with tonight's show, we kind of want to give to the listeners um, an understanding of how this event came to be. So uh, with that, we're going to start getting into this, uh, kind of give a little background about what VE Day is. Uh, then Joey's going to talk about the events leading up to it. We're going to just discuss this. We're going to have some fun tonight. Sit back, have a drink. I hope everyone's got a tasty beverage. Oh, yeah. And um, <laughs> let's just let's enjoy this. This is 75 years so that we're, we're here to live this experience and and. and Give thanks to all those who who made that possible, because we could be in a far worse place if it hadn't happened. So, uh, Austin, I know you got something to start us off with to kind of give us a little background of what VE Day is. So, why don't you take it in? 
Yeah, yeah. So uh, I'll make it real quick. Uh, so May 8th, 1945 was the date that the Allies celebrated the defeat of Nazi Germany and the end of Adolf Hitler's Reich, formally recognizing the end of the Second World War in Europe. This day became known as VE, Victory in Europe Day. The Allies had begun to overrun Germany from the West during April as Soviet forces advanced from the East. On uh, April 25th, 1945, Allies and Soviet forces met at the Elbe River. The German army was all but destroyed. Five days later, Hitler killed his dog, his new wife, Ava, and then committed suicide in his Berlin bunker. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yes. (laughs) Wait, he killed his dog? Yeah. This is I thought he was an animal lover. Oh, my God. Guess not. Yeah, he, he, said, it. he said everybody had to go. <laughs> yeah, everybody had to go. <laughs> everybody. <laughs> what was it, Joe? He, he tested a cyanide he, on Blondie, he, right? Uh, yep. Yeah. <laughs> Poor Blondie. Poor Blondie. Have Never. a drink for Blondie, everybody. Killed Never by your cooked. master with a cyanide castle. Oh, my God. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers to Blondie. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. I didn't know that. So, uh, the successor, Admiral Carl Donitz, sent uh, General Alfred Yodel to General Dwight Eisenhower's Supreme Allied Headquarters in Rhymes to seek terms for an end to the war. At approximately 2.41 a.m. on May 7th, General Yodel signed the unconditional surrender of German forces, which was to take effect uh, on May 8th, approximately 11.01 p.m. After six years and millions of lives lost, the Nazi scourge was crushed, and the war in Europe was finally over. It was on this date that uh, great celebrations took place across Europe and North America. In London, over a million people celebrated victory in Europe, VE Day. Crowds massed in uh, Trafalgar Square and up the Mall to Buckingham Palace, where King George and Queen Elizabeth, accompanied by the Prime Minister Winston Churchill, appeared on the balcony of the palace to cheer in crowds. Amongst those crowds, Princess Elizabeth and her sister, Princess Margaret blended anonymously, apparently enjoying the celebrations for themselves firsthand. In the United States, President Harry Truman, who celebrated his 61st birthday that same day, decided or dedicated the victory to his uh, basically forerunner, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who had died less than a month earlier on April 12th. The Allies had originally agreed to mark May 9th, 1945, as VE Day, but eager Western journalists broke the news of Germany's surrender prematurely. Thus signaling the earlier celebration, the Soviets kept to the agreed date, uh, and Russia still commemorates the end of the Second uh, Second World War, known in Russia as the Great Patriotic War, as Victory Day, May 9th. Um, and then I guess going from there, parties were organized throughout Europe and North America in May 2005 to celebrate the 60th anniversary of VE Day. Those events planned to commemorate the liberation of, Ch- of the Channel Islands, which were the only part of Britain to fall under the domination of the Third Reich. Okay. Kind of gives a little background of what uh, VE Day was for everybody alive back then. Um, Just an overview. Yeah, of course. We'll, we'll dive into this a little bit farther. Uh, one thing I like is that you, you mentioned that, what is it? You said overzealous journalists jumped the gun on that one? They did. God, nothing changes in 75 years. Gotta get that story up for the next guy. Uh, Next day, we like to retract our statement that we made yesterday. (laughs) Cheers to journalists! Cheers to journalists. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, it's you know reading 
the book July 1914, Winston Churchill's mentioned quite a bit in that, in the First World War. It's amazing how he's a even bigger player in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Is he like the only guy that was in both, like a major player in both wars? At a political spot like that? Yeah. Um, yeah, for the most part, because I believe that every major player in World War II, I mean, was was involved in the first war in obviously minor you know situations. I mean, you know, I know Patton was in it, Eisenhower was in it, Truman was in it. I mean, they were all soldiers. Montgomery was in it. Um, I'm sure there's guys, you know, lesser known individuals that might have been politically. That but politically, just... he's I the mean, biggest he player, was... right? Yeah, and he yeah. was in both, making decisions in both. Arguably more yeah. in the second. Right. He. What is he? Who's if the first one? He was like munition, I believe, and then he was. Um... Well, he was something to do with First Sea, Lord, Lord of the Sea, whatever they call that title in England. And then he was like, he got kicked out of that after um, Gallipoli. Then he was like ahead of the, like the munitions department. I mean, so he was like always up there. Yeah. And actually what's funny, even a, a little tidbit about church. So he was in the Boer War as like a correspondent. And he got captured by the Boers. Then he escaped. And I don't remember how long he was on the run for, but he was across the Veld by himself, dodging commando raiders, and then he linked up with the British again. So, I mean, he was there, too. <laughs> yeah, that dude's everywhere. There's an interesting book on him, too. It's like uh, Hero of the Empire. There's a book about him. You can do a whole podcast on just him. <sighs> We have to break it up into three parts, probably. Make a series <laughs> on it, yeah. <laughs> it's like a month's worth of work for a podcast. <laughs> yes. This month, July, Churchill. <laughs> so it's not Churchill. I mean, he was around a long time. I mean, he was always in. I mean, he was prime minister twice. Yeah. So there's at least that. That, that's probably a story in its own right, just that, you know, two times that happened. So, um, moving on to what we got next, I would say let, let's talk about getting to VE Day. So, there's a lot of things that happened prior to the big celebration. I mean, a lot. Um, and we're going to obviously not going to get so much into detail about what these things were mostly just a summary. So, uh, I know, Joey, you got some stuff that you um, were looking at to bring up. What do, what do you got as far as – let's let the listeners know how we get to VE Day. Sure. Um, you know, everybody knows about the invasion of Normandy, uh, opening up the Western Front in France. Mm-hmm. Uh, that started the – I guess Third Front. I'm sorry, you had the – the Italian front, you had the Russian front, and then you had the Western front. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was now the third one. Uh, then the Allies recaptured France. Germany desperately tries in the winter, and I'm sorry, December 1944. Uh, they plan a surprise attack, which is the Battle of the Bulge. Um, 
Hitler believed that this would cripple the Allies, but the German high command thought it would just severely stop the supply lines and force the Allies back to Normandy. Um, on the western, or I'm sorry, the eastern front, uh, probably the Battle of Stalingrad would be the the big turning point in that in that front. Uh, Three hundred thousand guys die there, and since that battle, the uh, Germans and their allies just keep falling back like crazy. Poland fights back, Hungary fights back, uh, Romania fights back, and then you get to the invasion of Germany by the Soviet Union in March, and you have this huge bloodbath in Silo Heights, which is a suburban area of Berlin. You had the Americans uh, get through at Remagen, the bridge at Remagen. They had a movie made on that. Uh, I think it's called Bridge at Remagen, right? I believe it is, yes. And, uh, you know, another thing that Hitler was angry about, there was the bridge that was not destroyed and the Allies got through. They would eventually destroy the Germans at the Ruhr, the Americans and the British. And, of course, you have the Soviets getting to Berlin and probably one of the most statistically under, I guess they don't have enough evidence of this, but a ton of people were killed, murdered and raped in the Battle of Berlin by the Soviets. I mean, they don't even know how many civilians died. That's how brutal that battle was. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the uh, the film footage doesn't even do justice. No. And then, mean, meanwhile, you have the Fuhrer in his bunker going absolutely crazy. And at one point, he is commanding armies that have already been destroyed by the Soviets. They don't exist anymore. And he supposedly kills himself before the war ends. Supposedly. You know, and I want to touch on that because I kind of knew that this part was coming up. Now, uh, whether or not anybody has actually seen this series, I believe History Channel did it. It was uh, In Search of Hitler. There's this theory about Hitler escaping out of his bunker in Berlin and ending up in South America. I wanted to ask you guys one question. Regarding Hitler, did he or did he not commit suicide? And if he didn't, do you think he went to South America like they think? Joey, you go first. Yeah, he went there. That dude was a fanatic. He, that guy was commanding ghost armies. He hated the Russians. He didn't want to lose to them. Of course he went there. He was going to try to resurrect his, his Reich in South America, which, by the way, Argentina wasn't hiding. You know, they were friends. <laughs> Austin, what do you think? Did he get out or did he blow his brains out with a cyanide capsule between his teeth? You know, it's really hard to say, but I'd like to I, I'd, I'd like to think that perhaps he's in like some sort of cryogenic sarcophagus with Walt Disney somewhere oh, in Area 51. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's where they're at. Area 51 in a cryogenic yeah. chamber. Waiting for the masses to come over, you know? He's waiting for his calling, comes back. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I'm the rapture. I'm 140. I'm back, people. I'm I'm back. Captain America, just like that. Yeah, Captain America. (laughs) Baby. (laughs) Oh, no. Um, I've always thought that. He got out even before that. Sir. I mean, I can remember being a kid just thinking, like, this doesn't add up to me. I mean, this dude is fanatically Joey said. Can you see him seriously going out that way? 
I, I mean, I don't. I mean, it probably just builds his, like, legacy up to be like, man, I shot myself. I didn't get captured by the commies, you know. It's my my thought on it. But That's a huge, huge middle finger because the Soviets and the Allies never found him. So that was, like, his last laugh. Agreed. I mean, and, you know, Stalin was all like, you need to find him. I remember reading about it. He was just like obsessed with making sure they found him and when they found that you know burned corpse that kind of looked like him or whatever and they went with that story that you know they shot himself they took him out and burned his body out in the yard and you know stalin was like okay good we got him and you know even still the russians to this day will not allow that testing on that uh set of skull bones that were found. They won't test it. They won't let anybody touch it. It's probably girls. So I think they have probably some random guy. (laughs) I mean, wouldn't that really put like a huge dent into the theory that he killed himself in a bunker with a cyanide capsule all at once? I mean, if they came out tomorrow and told us like, yeah, guess what? That, uh, that skull fragment's not his. We don't know what happened to him. People are gonna be like, "Shit, he left." <laughs> He's gone. I think it's just easier. To get people got a closer, I guess. You know, and and the thing that you know just dawned on me is like, Saddam got we caught him in a hole. <laughs> I mean, they caught him like what? It wasn't. I don't remember how many months after the invasion of Iraq they caught him, but I mean, Hitler, if he really got out. Never found them. Kind of funny. Well, they they were at one point in world history the strongest military in the world. No one could stop them, except ironically themselves at times. That's a lot of power, <laughs> a lot of influence. I could believe it. I mean, Saddam was nowhere near uh-uh. that level of brute force. No, you're absolutely correct. I mean, the the technology that the Germans had in the the 30s and into the 40s, I mean, was just way ahead of everybody else. Absolutely way ahead of anybody else. And their minds. I mean, yeah, I mean, Operation Paperclip is a perfect example of why we took them in. I mean, if it wasn't for Operation Paperclip and taking Von Braun in, we don't have a space program, really. <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> and that's a that's another subject matter that we could talk about God. in the future's operation clip. You know, yeah, we're gonna take a bunch of former Nazis in here because we want the scientist. Well, for good reason, because <laughs> if we didn't use them, somebody else was. Soviets. So tainted. It's really weird histories. Kind of, like I said, it's gray. It ain't black and white. Um, <clears throat> so, we're getting to this end point here with this uh, end of the war thing. And, God, it's just, it happened so fast. If you really think about it, the way the Germans were just, you know, moving back on you know, all fronts, but I mean, primarily they're still fighting the Soviets. I mean, that was what, would you guys agree that they're 
putting most of their focus on them instead of the Western allies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's like the Western allies are just cutting right across. And then they obviously meet up. And then, you know, it will probably, you know, get into this once we get past the VE day here, you know, kind of surrounding the end here. But, I mean, for all intents and purposes, I mean, the war's basically over. We're getting up to the end here early May. So, you know, like we just discussed, Hitler's Hitler's gone. Whether he's on a submarine on his way to freaking Argentina or he's burned out in the backyard, <laughs> um, he's out of the picture, okay? So we got like roughly about a, a week left of fighting, official war. The, the two major armies are coming together in central Germany, and there's this whole do. Where's the stopping point? And I know that they kind of agreed that they're going to stop. Like they kind of let it be known, you know. But there was there was generals who wanted to keep pushing forward. Patton was especially furious that the Americans or Western allies weren't going to be in on the final assault on Berlin. And I think that that would have a major play in the post-war world because of that. What do you guys think? Oh, for sure. I mean, every... Every decision that was made after that point was basically leading up to the Cold War. Mm-hmm. And then look what happened. We dealt with the Soviet Union for the next 50 years. Right. Yeah, I always wondered if, you know, I, I think if it, Patton was correct. Should have just went in as far as we could. I mean, and again, and we'll touch on that soon. So it's... It's very strange where we are right now leading up to VE Day. So um, let me do the the VE Day itself, what I got here, um, how we get to that point. So it looks like May 3rd, Admiral Dernitz was authorized by Admiral Hans George von Friedsberg to head to General Montgomery to begin surrendering to forces facing him. The reality was buying time for German forces facing Soviets in the east to move west and surrender to the Western Allies. Montgomery wanted a full unconditional surrender of German troops in the region of northern Germany, Dunkirk, the Netherlands, and Denmark, which he would get on the 4th. On May 5th, Friesenberg headed to Allied Supreme Headquarters in Reims, authorized from Dernitz to offer surrendering all German troops still in the field, opposing only those in Norway, Italy, and in the West. Nothing was said those opposed to the Soviets. Friedrichsberg was shocked to find that there would be no negotiating, but a complete unconditional surrender of all German troops on all fronts. While not having the authorization to do so, he reached out to Dernitz. Dernitz was hoping to buy even more time. It just stood. There was 210,000 troops that were evading the Soviets and were moving toward British and American lines. Those in southern Europe had barely gotten going. Dernus actually continued to stall on this measure. So it's funny to so that what's happening is that the German high command is trying to pull as many troops out of the east to surrender to the British 
and the Americans. So <laughs> he, he knew what was going to happen to those guys. I kind of commend him for that, though. Well, not the, the rank and file journey. Bad eyes. They weren't. Point just right. for survival. Right. No, I agree. I mean, that's. It, it, I just don't like the blanket statement that every German was a Nazi. I think that's unfair to say in a historical sense. And, you know, especially at that point in the war, what are you fighting for? Obviously, your leadership doesn't know what's going on anymore. They're sending ghost troops into an, a war. Well, I would say at that point, you're fighting to survive. I mean, you just want to get out of that situation. I mean, I, I, I would have to think that those guys all assume that they're – their war's over. I mean, when you're fighting in your backyard, you kind of understand what's happened to you. <laughs> you lost. <laughs> right. right. I mean, hey, there's no way around. I mean, it, you know, three years ago you are fighting in Russia. You're not even close to home. Now all of a sudden you're in your backyard fighting, you know. That's crazy. I would think that they, they knew it was over. Um. Dernitz then sent Admiral Yodel to Reims to help with the negotiations and more stalling tactics. Yodel was determined to resist the Allied pressure. There he would offer the Allies in the West all German troops facing them. If this failed, he was authorized to start accepting terms in slow increments. If Yodel found Eisenhower wanted to put a freeze on the movement of troops in all sectors, he would then be forced to sign the surrender terms. Again, this was to buy time for the troops in the field to head west. So, again, this is just constantly trying to buy time for, you know, his guys. He knew the war was over. Um, one thing that I got here was kind of interesting is that Dernitz felt that the Western allies and the Germans should work together to curb Soviet ambitions in Europe. Dernitz was quoted as saying in regards to Eisenhower, quote, he has no proper appreciation of the new turn of events in world affairs that have now taken place, unquote. Dernitz, in early hours of May 7th, after having tried stalling for another two hours, gave the order to Yodel to accept the surrender terms. Do we find it interesting that at this last stage, that he's actually trying to broach the idea that the Americans and British should join forces with the Germans and fight the Soviets. It's, I mean, it's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. You're going to avoid a 50-year conflict with a superpower, or you ally yourself with one of the most evil entities to ever exist. Exactly. What do you think, Austin? Yeah, no, I completely agree with Joe. It just, yeah, I don't know. I couldn't put it better myself, honestly. <laughs> I mean, I, mean I, I can't even fathom that he would actually think that they would say yes. I mean, not at I'm all. I'm sure it was considered. Well, I, I mean, so? who was who the Americans' biggest rival <clears throat> even up to the surrender of the Germans. It wasn't the British. It was the Soviets. Are we talking ground forces? Well, how they were up, dividing things up. Yeah. 
Stalin had already put his foot okay. down on things like, no, I want this. I want this. And the Americans especially were like, uh, I don't know if we want to go down that road. And hit, Churchill hated him. He wouldn't even sit by him. I think Churchill was probably the smarter of the big three because he knew the ramifications of what would have to be dealt with. I think that American leadership, FDR, primarily was just trying to get to the end of the war and then get us out of there. And I think Stalin played that weakness on FDR not to stand up to him, even though it seemed like – I think I've read like FDR really thought that he had Stalin – like handled, but I mean, out of the three, Stalin, he pulled the wool over their eyes, and he got everything he wanted. And Churchill complained about it, and FDR did nothing. And I mean, if anybody, I mean, they look all of Eastern Europe really suffered, but I think that the poles essentially got gypped and royally screwed because. They were supposed to be taken care of at the beginning of the war, and they weren't. And now here it was that they're going to, you know, they're free from the Nazis to only be handed right over to some other, you know, evil, you know, entity. That's a problem. It's just a flawed system. (laughs) Well, it's like Patton said, you got to stand up to them, and they didn't. Yeah, and then we go to war five years later. In the Pacific, fighting a communist country, communist regime. Well, yeah, everything that happens after the you know, World War II is just isn't really worked out too well. It's just my opinion. Uh, Fourteen years in Vietnam that, that was that was all worth um, it, man. Well, like twenty years, they started sending guys over in sixty-two. Early 60s. I think even Kennedy was still president. They were sending like observers over there. So, I mean, <clears throat> yeah. I don't think it worked the way they wanted it to. But you don't think in those war rooms when they're sitting discussing uh, like, hey, Donitz has pitched an idea. What if we go against the Soviets? You don't think any of the leaders were like, well, I mean, we're going to have to deal with them at some point. I'm sure if they sat there and had that that conversation and Patton had been sitting there, he'd been in the he would have been he would have been in his car already. <laughs> Let's go. Don't give him a chance to change their mind, bastards. He'd been yelling. He'd already have him he'd have them all moving already. He'd already throw his paperwork on the table and be like, I thought you might think of this and here's what I've come up with. He's already had everything planned <laughs> out. <laughs> That's how he was. But you know, he was a man who understood situations. That's why he did, you know, and they openly admitted he wasn't a politician, and rightfully so, but he wasn't wrong. He knew you'd have to fight him again. We talked about him on last week's show, right, Austin? We did. We did. <laughs> that was an interesting one. That yeah, that was an interesting one. <laughs> well, I mean, you think of, when I think of, yes, it was. like, stero- stereotypical, like, Good versus evil, like in military, it's Americans against uh-huh. the Germans. You know, like when you think of modern warfare, yeah. 
of the most is that moment in the for the city of Bastogne. Oh yeah, well he was able to turn that, you know, his army like just going another direction, and he got there pretty quick too. And he beat the crap out of the Germans. What? You... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did. But but see what we talked about on last week's show. He would already, he already knew that they were bulking up to make the attack, so he was already setting up planning to deal with that because he goes like, if they do what I think they're going to do, this is what I think I can do. So he was already ahead of the game before high command was. So before Bradley and before Eisenhower and all them guys even really knew what was going on, he knew. He just had a, a, a weird sense of seeing a battlefield, like a sixth sense, I guess. That's why he was good. And I'm sure somebody listening is like, what – Patton's an asshole. You're going to hear that. You know, somebody's out there thinking, oh, my God, Patton. Hey, his troops loved him. And they, their they opinions did. are what matter the most. That's right. Nope. We talked about that in leadership, what, last week's show? Or the beginning show episode, Austin? We're talking about that? Generalship? Uh, yeah, you did him, and I heard Washington, yeah. Yeah, but it was important with the leadership capabilities of the two when we talked about that. Yeah, yeah, you went into detail on, on him, yeah. Yes. <laughs> All right, so I got just a few more things here on the ending here. Um, so at 2.41 a.m., Yodel signed for the Germans and General Smith for the Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force. I'm going to butcher his name, but I'm going to try it for the Soviet General Z- Suslo Parov signed for the Soviets, even though he was not authorized from Moscow to do so. And French General Francois Seve signed as a witness. Um, Next, the documents were then forwarded to Eisenhower, who then sent a message to the Chief of Staff, Chiefs of Staff, with a simple message, quote, the mission of this Allied force was fulfilled at 0241 Local time, May 7th, 1945. There would still be skirmish fighting in the days ahead, but for all intents and purposes, the war in Europe was finally over. There was one detail, and Austin mentioned it earlier when he talked about the different days of the VE Day celebration and how they worked. <laughs> it comes down to this. One detail was that Moscow and the Soviets didn't recognize the surrender. They felt that the Western Allies gave the Germans an open hand to keep fighting the Soviets and not follow by the protocols that were discussed in prior discussions. So the whole surrender ceremony had to be redone again in the Soviet-controlled area. The more formal surrender would take place in Berlin on May 8th at 11.30 p.m. The surrender became official, and this satisfied the Soviets, especially Stalin, and they felt the one in Reims was just preliminary. The Soviets wanted a delay in the surrender date for the 9th. The Western Allies told them that things had progressed too far as far as you know, celebrations and the official you know, let out. So officially in the West, VE Day remained the 8th, while in Moscow it remained the 9th, obviously because the time was past midnight. So... I remember reading that Stalin was pissed off 
that the signature had happened in Reams and not in his zone, or he was kind of out of the loop or whatever. And he made such a big deal about it that they had to do it in Berlin. That was him. <clears throat> the egotistical nut job. Well, it's the same thing with the, the flag over the Reichstag. They reenacted that for the cameras. <laughs> yes, they did. Just for him to prove a point that he stuck it to the Germans. Yeah, let me ask a question to you guys. Hitler, historically, you know, you, you say Adolf Hitler and everybody knows. Evil guy. Bad stuff. You know. We all know. Yeah. But when you say Joseph Stalin... It's not even in the same category as Hitler. Have you seen his numbers? <laughs> well, that's by where I was going with this. Yeah. He was worse, but to the common people, you say Stalin and they're just like, oh. <laughs> what about him? Isn't that messed up? Kids my age, who's that? <laughs> well, well, I don't know. There's a lot of socialists in your clubs these days, your age group. I don't associate. <laughs> Yeah, for good reason. Um, and you'd think he'd get more hatred because he was a commie. Mm-hmm. Right. But do you think it's the Uncle Joe effect that allows him not to be thrown in the same category as Hitler? No, it's the media. It's it's who who could we make the bad guy quicker and not have to explain it as much? Well, Hitler would make sense because we fought him and he was an enemy. It's we, we want – who's the big bad guy? Stalin was always mysterious. We never really fought the Soviet Union. We fought their auxiliary people. Mm-hmm. We never really fought them. Mm-hmm. Right. And plus the, the Soviet Union did well of shrouding themselves. True. I think most of the stuff that we knew about the Soviet Union didn't come out public until they fell apart. Hmm. I mean, look, the Soviet Union wouldn't even admit to the uh, was a Catan uh, massacre. Those didn't even become public record until like 1992 when it finally came out that, yeah, they they did order the Polish officers to be executed. Soviets for almost 50 years, they Denied it. That run a giant gulag system all over the place. They, oh, I mean, so sorry. No, go. You're good. Go no, ahead. I was gonna say they, they are an enemy that we're just realizing now, fifty years later. That or, I'm sorry, way later. What were truly evil when mm-hmm. at the growing up through that time we just knew them as the big bad Soviet Union. They have missiles. We have missiles. Now it's like, oh my god, these people were horrible. Whereas the Nazis dirty laundry yeah, was I there. Tend to... Well, that's the thing. I mean, you know, Nazi Germany had a 12-year run. <laughs> and like Austin said, look at the numbers. The Soviet Union had how many years to perfect their evil doing on the people of that country? And other countries, I mean, Afghanistan. 70 years? Hungary, Poland, Ukraine. the Baltic. Am I missing Ukraine. anything else? Oh, yeah, Ukraine. Yeah. Look what they did to them in the 30s. 
you know, that's a part of history that I, I just don't understand the general thought process of like regular people. If, and look at the media today, look at the pe- most general public. They're so quick to throw around. Well, if you don't agree with somebody, it's just so quick to call them out as a Nazi. Oh, you don't agree with me. You're a Nazi. It's just like, first of all, they don't even know what Nazi is. Okay. They probably don't even know anything that it did. Just, they know the bad stuff, which fine. But nobody ever gets upset when they see a hammer, you know, a hammer and sickle. These days, it's it's encouraged. <laughs> you know what I mean. I agree. But you know, it go, it goes but, back to kind of like what Joey was saying, which is like the social media and the school systems. They, it, it's like Hitler just got, you know, he he he's just the stamp for you know making the trend of hatred. You know, he's got these big red mm-hmm. flags with this nasty symbol, and you know the army of Nazis, whatever. Which, you know, fine, see it however you want. But like, like you said, you know, people don't exactly understand, like, the backstory or they don't even take into consideration what the Soviets were even doing. Right. I mean, there was a – in the war – so, and I know this from the poet. So this is about Poland during the war. Now, they had a – government exile that was in London. And as the Soviets moved into Poland, they set up a puppet government commies in uh, Lublin. So what they did was they actually invited these, what they basically told the people in Poland was, look, you're going to be able to have your own government. So they invite these, they weren't, they weren't communist members. They were all other affiliates. They invited them to Moscow. Like, they're going to have a conference there about setting up a new Polish government. You know what the first thing they do? They arrest them. <laughs> they lock them, them all up. <laughs> they put them away. Because they didn't want anybody facing them. They were hell-bent on setting up a communist in Poland. And that's it. Nothing else. And, you know, that's exactly the problem. They were already doing all the evil things in the, in the public eye to people. Right then and there. Hmm. So, I don't know. It's very, uh, I don't know, it's controversial. You can't really talk about these type of things these days. You know, the school system's all jacked no, up. No, I don't. They leave too much out. Whoa, well, like, ho, ho. Right, I, and I don't understand. You're insulting my livelihood there. No. You know, I am the school system. What can I say? <laughs> well, get up there, Joey. Tell oh, no, I, it I've, is. I've had this discussion with my friend who's a, a social studies teacher as well. And granted, you know, Hitler demonized himself. I mean, come on. Like mm-hmm. everything he did, he's guilty. That's great. But to, like when they make the comparisons, like they compare Trump to Hitler, it's like, well, you, you can't you can't do that. Like, look at what he did like that guy was four bad military yes. blunders away from conquering all of the eastern hemisphere right which would have followed his you know his dream or whatever he actually his goals instead of how many more people would have been massacred in his concentration camps and his einsatz groupings 
billions. Exactly. And like you're saying, it's just so easy to label your opposition in life is Hitler, Nazis, because everybody knows the evil deeds that were done. And I think it cheapens history down because I don't really think that most people today have any idea what was going on inside Germany. Period. They just know, like, man, they did some bad stuff. Yeah, but how much do you know? <laughs> you know? It's like you're, you're hearing a story like, oh, I, you I, don't know the whole story. Well, that's how I, I attribute to it. I believe that most people just like to throw around these catchphrases because it's easy. Well, I don't agree with you. You're a Nazi. Goose step a goon. Again, that's the thing. You know, well, you know, what, you insult somebody and call them a commie? They wouldn't even care. It's just weird how we've we've selected certain meanings, you know, historically speaking, and then we just get upset about it, you know. But I I tend to ask this question a lot to myself when I think about the end of the war, especially Europe. They say they were fighting for freedom and democracy, and you know getting rid of these militaristic uh, thoughts and governments, etc. Do you think that goal was achieved? Austin, you can go first. Say that one more time. For me, you were kind of cutting in and out. <clears throat> okay. So the goal that they wanted to do for, you know, the, the World War II was to Free, you know, free nations and promote democracy and and human rights and um, you know, peace on earth or whatever, you know, is what they're basically trying to do and you know, make it a better world. Do you feel that that was accomplished after the second, you know, out out of the ashes of the Second World War that that happened? Going forward, like looking at where we are today. Well, from the end of the war in '45 to today, yeah, look back through it. Did, did those goals happen? Well, no, I mean, I guess it would be just, I mean, I, I guess just to put it plain and simple, I don't entirely think that they did. Okay. Okay. Joey? Absolutely not. Your arch nemesis okay. for the next 50 years, you were fighting with them. Not only that, mm -hmm. immediately after... Nazis lost control of Greece, they plunged into a civil war. How many civil wars have been fought in, in Eastern Europe since World War II? Dozens? Well, it would be Greece, Yugoslavia, Hungary. That's three, right? Give, uh, what else? Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Greece and... Um, Bulgaria, didn't they have a huge... Yugoslavia. They might have. There was a lot of friction in Eastern Europe. You're right. I, granted, I know not all of it was created by Hitler and the Nazis in World War II, but, I mean, we were allied <laughs> with our arguably greatest enemy, and then immediately after that war ended, now we have to face them. Exactly. I mean, so, and you already... 
like I said earlier statement, the Allies essentially, Western Allies, essentially gave Stalin and the Soviets a free hand to all Eastern Europe. So those people who were claiming for democracies, they probably were democratic republics and, or sorry, democracies or republics or some type of monarchy prior to World War II. And then after that, they're stuck in a sphere of influence with the Soviet Union. So you, you had asked um, a question about why we view Nazis as something so evil, but communist as something so not. I think. Well, not how we throw it around. Yeah. Okay. Is it because we had to actually work together, communists and democracy to beat the Nazis? Like they are that evil to where we had to team up to take them down. Well, that's, I think so. I think it's the Uncle Joe effect. They gave him a nickname. He, they, they fought with us, so they're not that bad. They might be bad, but they're not that bad. But I think, like, what Austin had touched base on, is like once everything came out, we realized that, yeah, they were bad. With that being said. But I think it was like working the other way. Militarily speaking, though, I mean, if they weren't fighting on all those fronts, could they have really thrashed the Soviet Union all the way through? Yeah. The Germans? If the, And I will say this, and I stick to this gun. If the Soviet Union was not supplied by Britain and the United States, period, Germany would crush them. Well... There you go. Well, let's just... And that's exactly what it is. You start supplying. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what I take that to. I, I, when you asked the question and then we just talked about it, it's like, wow, they if it wasn't for the Soviet Union giving up... I mean, what did they lose? Almost 2 million soldiers fighting the Germans? If those two million guys weren't fighting and you mm-hmm. had the, the Western powers fighting on the other side, they would have easily probably overrun one front. Okay, let's 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 do a um, hypothetical revised history. You know, there's a good <laughs> book about this. I actually read World War II. I don't remember what it's down now. It's, like a, it's a different plot. <clears throat> let's say, for instance, Barbarossa doesn't happen. Okay, even though we know it's going to some way. Okay, do you think it just eventually the isolation of Great Britain? They actually, I mean, because most people don't know this, but Hitler approached the United Kingdom on how how many times for peace? At least, what, mm-hmm. 10, 15 times? What if one of those times they said, sure? Because as far as I know, Hitler never wanted to conquer the Great Britain. He actually respected he the, lived in the British people. Yeah, he lived in England. Uh, When was he there? I didn't know that. In his youth, I think he was 20, his brother lived in England. He spent some time there. That's where he grew to appreciate them and their culture. And that's why even when the war broke out, he wanted his people to make sure they treated them with the utmost respect, even as prisoners. And that's why he gave the order, okay. do not bomb British cities, only bomb British manufacturing. And then, of course, once the British did it to him, he's like, well, mm-hmm. F you, I'm going to get you. 
Yes, it's true. Do we think that if Churchill would have not been prime minister? All right. Maybe it was somebody else. Do you think that that would have uh, affected the continuation of the war? Yes. Absolutely. I th- what do you think? I think I think Britain would have gave in. I think their empire meant more to them than anything. But again, British policy was always to make sure that there was a balance of power on mainland Europe. So whether it was France, whether it was Germany or whoever, there had to be this balance of power. There was not one greater country over the other. They kind of checked themselves because this gave the British free reign to run around the world and make the largest empire in history. So I think at the end of the day, if it was your empire or balance of power in Europe, the empire takes over. That's a fair point. And, and not many leaders and, could have been as mm-hmm. stern and as believable against the odds like Churchill was. I mean, let's be honest, in 1940, they, they were doomed. He was the perfect leader at the perfect time for them. Totally agree. But you, you, you wonder what the little things that could have been done or weren't done that would have had a greater effect. Because if he wasn't prime minister, like I just said, they, they get out of the war. Then Germany literally has a free hand in Eastern Europe, and they're done. They're going to go do what they want to do. Absolutely. And what happens in history after that point? What happens to the rest of us? Well, then you go to that Netflix show where we're divided between Japan and Germany. (laughs) Oh, the, uh, what is that show called? It's on Amazon. Yes, yes. Man in the High Castle. That's a good show. People should watch that. It's pretty good. Very interesting show. Um, So give that one a shout. Shout out if you guys want to watch that one. It's interesting. Um, What do you got, Austin? Anything here? No, no. I mean, this definitely isn't my area of expertise, I would say. So, (laughs) but... um... Questions? How about questions? You got questions? (laughs) I mean, hey, you guys are definitely just... uh, I mean, you're killing it for one. This whole back and forth thing, it's going really well. I like it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's it's oh. a different it's a different vibe with another person, you know. I like mm-hmm. it a lot. It's good. Imagine if this is a oh sports show God. too. Yeah. Dude, can we do that? <laughs> I, I I'm going through sports withdrawal over here, <laughs> man. Yeah. I know we all are. We all are. Um. I kind of want to, you know, get at the end of this show here. Um kind of because we're up against the, t- the clock. When you look back at VE Day, 
um, being 75 years. And most of, like I said in the beginning, a lot of these World War II veterans are not going to be with us anymore. Do you ever have the thought in your mind that the meaning of what they went through, like over time, will not be significant like it was way now? Like, because it's close enough in history. Like, a lot of times with history, it's if the event happened so long ago, it isn't really on people's minds. But because we have living beings who were there, it still somewhat attaches to us. Do you fear that in the future, future generations won't appreciate what, what happened? Well, luckily for us, we have so many different platforms that have created these documentaries that are being told by the people that actually went through it. And you can get, I mean, World mm-hmm. War II in HD is one where they, they have live actors and they have the actual person mm-hmm. sitting there telling their story of how they survived this event. Mm. And I think that with the technology, that's definitely going to help you know, future generations. What my concern is, is how future generations are going to be interested to it. That's what I was going to point out too, is that, you know, like, the, like sure the content is out there and sure the material's out there, but the will for somebody to just want to, you know, on their own free time, just get up and say, Hey, I'm going to watch something about world war two. It's, it's starting to get really, really slim with the people who are actually, you know, even around my age, like 21 year olds, like I could probably ask five or six, seven, ten of my friends, Hey, like, you know, this, this, and the other about World War II, they'd be like, what, what are you talking about? Like, I'm not going to watch a documentary. Like, that's just, and that's just the sad truth. That's just can what I, it is. Can I counter that with uh, motion pictures, one of them being Dunkirk? I think Movies that, is a good point, yeah. that's a good way to keep that fresh in everyone's mind. I mean, Dunkirk was, oh, my God. Start. I mean, it was nonstop. And then I know it's not related to World uh-huh. War II, but 1917, <laughs> that movie was, it had me on Ridden. the edge of my seat. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I know it's a little bit off of what we're talking about. When you, when you talk about 1917, like I really thought for the 100th anniversary of World War I, we would have got more movies. Yeah. And I felt, again, and, and and, and this is like, I want to make this like my closing point here since we're up against the clock here. And I'll, I'll let you guys, you know, say your last, you know, last things. And I, I'm going to, you know, bring this topic up um, here. So what I've noticed with VE Day is like in Europe, especially the UK, it's a huge deal. I mean, like... I know it's going to be very hard because of the whole Corona lockdown. They're not going to be able to celebrate like they usually do, but anybody can look back at past events that they've held in the UK and in Europe. And it's such a big deal. I mean, they treat it like a, like a, I don't know. I don't want to say party because it's, I know it's remembering, you know, you know, horrific events, but they really go out to remember the sacrifice. Yeah, they celebrate the sacrifice, right? Right. But I want to know, like, why here in the United States 
you go go about your day and, and, and say like, you know, happy VE day. People are gonna look at you like, what the hell is VE day? Swept under the rug. It's why don't we treat these huge events that we are a part of in a country larger than you know those that were you know alongside of us fighting in that conflict? Like in Europe, they're gonna celebrate it huge. Well, I know not because of Corona, but they usually do. We don't do that here. Does it? Do you find that odd? Um, well, the thought of World War II before the United States even got in it was that was Europe's problem. European war. Maybe that's right. part of it. It's like, well, it never was fought here. We had Pearl Harbor, but especially with VE Day, the Germans never invaded mm-hmm. us. They mm-hmm. they fought us in the Atlantic. That's as far as they ever went. Our war. Mm-hmm. So you think that because it wasn't here that that takes like a when you mentioned Gettysburg, people could go to Gettysburg. They could experience it. They could learn about it. And it's pretty, I mean, the Civil War is still, I mean, some of those wounds are still kind of fresh to this day. It was here. We fought it. Americans died. And not saying that they did in World War mm-hmm. II. But when you go over there, you hear the battles. It was France. It was in, in Belgium. It was Germany. Maybe that's why. Could be, but I mean, you know, I would counter with this. Okay, so we celebrate July 4th as Independence Day, you know, birth of a nation, right? Why wouldn't we honor, I believe it's October 16th, like Yorktown ending, the Battle of Yorktown, which is like is the last great battle of the revolution that allows us to I have no idea. Day. We need to embrace Mexican culture more because they do it right. They celebrate everything. Well, <laughs> Well, that's the thing, and that's what bothers me about Cinco de Mayo Day. Everybody's out here celebrating Cinco de Mayo Day. First of all, I guarantee you that like eighty percent of them don't even know what the hell it is, what's about. Okay, and then they're celebrating a battle that took place in a foreign country that had nothing to do with us for the most part. We weren't really involved with it. I mean, we were in the middle of a civil war when this happens, but then you talk about Yorktown Day, and people are like. Your town. You might get somebody who knows it was an aircraft carrier, at least. (laughs) But at the end of the day, it's—I just think this—it's so weird as Americans how we treat our history. We just select these little tidbits that we're like, okay, that's important, but then we just push all still things that were very much a major part of our country. And we just don't really recognize them. For me, it's weird because I do Civil War reenacting. Austin does Civil War reenacting. And what's funny about it is, like, for me, when I get to, like, July, like, July 1st, I'm like, man, Gettysburg. Next one, two, and three in July, that's that. And at the same time as Vicksburg, that's all happening at the same time. It's like the conclusion, right? And then you have Fourth of July. But you never hear nothing. They don't talk about Gettysburg. I mean, I know the Fourth is right there, but it's just weird. Like, not even Pearl Harbor Day doesn't even feel like anything anymore. That is true. It's like I want to know what's happened. But on this channel, on this show, 
we're going to do specials where we talk about those days because it's important for people who enjoy history and talk about history to keep that section alive for the next generation. Agreed. And that's why I, I started this show, why I want to continue doing the show and have guests on and just share the knowledge of wealth about history to keep people's past alive because it's up to those living today to pass on the memories of those who came before. I'd like to say thank you to Austin, as always, for contributions, for helping out with the show and our, the Facebook page. And Joey for making his debut today. Very oh, thank you guys for having me. I appreciate it. And you are always welcome on the show. I'm sure we will be <laughs> doing another show similar to this. I mean, there's so much history to talk about. Um, he's also a contributor to the Facebook page. Uh, he's just buying his time with other worldly projects at this time in his life. So um, hopefully he'll be more involved in the future. Um, you can catch us on our Facebook page at Not Your Normal History. Uh, drop, drop a line, any questions, anything you hear on the show that you just want to bring up. We can always answer an episode in the future or any subject matter you'd like to want us to talk about. We're more than likely to do that. And, and uh, um, I was just going to say email too in case you don't want to post publicly on the page. Yep. There's an email just yep. on there too. Um, I want to thank you guys for being on thank tonight. You. This is, this is fun. Yeah. Thank you. It was great. Okay. Good. We'll do something in the future. Um, and with that, I usually have a catchphrase to end the show, but I think that with the, it being DE day, it is only, fitting that I end this show with President Truman's address to the American people. This is a solemn but glorious hour. I wish that Franklin D. Roosevelt had lived to see this day. General Eisenhower informs me that the forces of Germany have surrendered to the United Nations. The flags of freedom fly all over Europe. For this victory, we join in offering our thanks to the providence which has guided and sustained us through the dark days of adversity and into light. Much remains to be done. The victory won in the West must now be won in the East. The whole world must be cleansed of the evil from which half the world has been freed. United, the peace-loving nations have demonstrated in the West that their arms are stronger by far than the might of dictators or the tyranny of military cliques that once called us soft and weak. The power of our peoples to defend themselves against all enemies will be proved in the Pacific War as it was proved in Europe.